0: Christmas Eve gathering on Sunday morning. Why don't you stand to your feet? We're going to sing a little bit together. This morning, uh, we have the privilege of celebrating Jesus entering his creation as a baby. Uh, It's a celebration that leads us to be quiet and consider and to be loud and to celebrate. So let's sing, Oh, Come All You Faithful.
1: Buddy, did that work or not? (laughs) This little guy is crying his eyes out. So, uh, because he wanted to be a part of the choir, so we made him a part of the choir. (laughs) Well, Merry Christmas, everybody! Yeah, we're doing Christmas two days after the day. Um, This was supposed to be our Christmas Eve service, but we didn't have power. And trust me, you know, Crossroads, we thought long and hard about how we could do this with no power. We'll all just get our lighters out, or no one has lighters anymore, do they? <laughs> our phones, but we just, I started having these crazy thoughts like I can just see some girl's hair getting burned or something if we do candles. So anyway, um Steve called me, what do we do? And I said, let's do it Sunday. Partly because I just got done reading a Wall Street Journal article. It was uh, the most popular article um, of that day that was entitled, The Year Christmas Died. And basically, uh, the, the author went on to just talk about how essentially Christmas in New York City... I mean, anything having to do with anything of Christmas is outlawed. And (laughs) don't do that to me. Uh, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and we will celebrate Christmas. So Merry Christmas to all of you. And this morning, there are some traditions... That we're going to just continue to do, Um, like the psalmist says, uh, one generation declare God's praises to another generation. And this is one of those things that we want to declare our generation to the next generation. Um, Just the importance and the tradition of celebrating the meaning of Christmas. So this morning what we're going to do is um, all the elements that we're going to do Thursday night, Uh, We have people in our church that are going to give reflections from the Old Testament that give us hints, strong hints, as to the meaning of Christmas within how this applies to our lives, with also us singing uh, a lot of the songs that mean a lot to us this time of year. So, with that being said, Melissa Lane, who is subbing in for her husband who is sick today, uh, welcome, Melissa, everybody.
2: <laughs> Our story begins and ends with Jesus. Matthew 1.18 starts. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, they came together, and she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. From their sins. Save them from their sins. As people who have grown up in the church all of our lives, we tend to gloss over that sentence with an assumed understanding. But what does it really mean? Why does Jesus save? And from what? So we have to go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God made all things through Jesus, and it was perfect. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, lived in the midst of perfect, enjoying one another, and they had an intimate relationship with God, walking and talking with him. There was no shame, no guilt, no fear, only perfect love. Can you imagine a world where there was nothing wrong? There were no terrible diseases like cancer, Alzheimer's, and HIV. No fatal car accidents, no poor, no concerns no silly holiday family squabbles, and no loneliness. This is the good news. The bad news is that it all comes crashing down in Genesis chapter 3. Perfection was destroyed when Adam and Eve chose to sin, to break God's law, to break the relationship with him and to take him off the throne in their lives and put themselves there instead. In one bite, they are now ashamed of their nakedness and quickly put together a covering. Genesis 3, verse 8 says, Adam and Eve hid themselves from the presence of God. Hid themselves from his presence. But why? They were ashamed. They had guilt. They had fear. God calls himself to him, calls them to himself just like he normally does. But instead of enjoying an intimate walk with him, They experience a separation from God. Sin had broken the relationship, and there were real consequences. I can relate, can you? I've done the same thing and I've had consequences. I felt the guilt and the shame, and I've tried to hide. But God, oh those amazing words, but God, even in the midst of punishing their sin, offers Adam and Eve a better covering. God made coverings of skin and covered both Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve's sin had a deep price. Removal from their perfect garden and a now broken relationship with their creator, their father, their God and king. This set in motion a whole series of events for generations to come where sin needs covering. All throughout the Old Testament, we see the need for God's covering. In Genesis 6, God washed and covered the whole earth with water, because of the egregious sin. In Exodus 12, the Israelites needed to cover their doorsteps with the blood of a lamb. The blood covering offered them protection from the angel of death. Leviticus is full of specific rules and laws that govern animal sacrifices needed to cover the sins of the people. Blood was required in the process, but the animal blood was not sufficient, as the sacrifice needed to be continually repeated. But God, there's those words again, but God had a better plan. We do catch glimpses of this better plan in the Old Testament. In Psalm 32, David talks about a sin being forgiven and covered. Isaiah prophesies about coverings. And Elijah covers the widow's boy, and he rises from the dead. The people of Israel needed a washing, a covering for their sin. And we also need a covering. We need God's covering, which is not a result of something that I can do. We need God's continual grace and mercy. I need God's covering. The only way my dead soul can become alive is through God's moving, through his work, through Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection. The ultimate covering is the shed blood on the cross, the final covering, the only covering that satisfies God's wrath, the only way that we, that I, can move from death to life. My own sin needs covering, And the pain that I have caused my Heavenly Father is disgusting and shameful. There is no hope within me to rescue myself. I have no hope outside of God's ultimate plan. But God, being rich in grace and mercy, has covered my sin and looks at me through Jesus as a new creation. That is my hope. That is my joy. That is my comfort. For by grace I have been saved through faith. It is not my own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that I don't boast. I am his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so I should walk in them. We are sinners saved by grace and no longer slaves to fear, shame, and guilt, but are children of God. I hope that in this Christmas season that you'll find the rest and peace through Jesus as your ultimate covering.
1: Thank you, Melissa. I got that phone call uh, late last night that one of our speakers um, couldn't make it today. So I'm a fill-in. And I asked, what text do you want me to do? And they said the text assigned was Genesis 22. And I said, I can do that one. Um, This is one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. If you know it, it's the story of Abraham. Abraham that begins with these haunting words from God to Abraham. Abraham, now take your son Isaac and go to the land of Moriah and offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. I don't think you have to be a dad to feel the horror of that kind of request. Abraham take your son. Which son? (laughs) I have two sons. Your son Isaac, the son whom you love. And I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. In fact, there's there's a little word that translators translate out of God's request. It's it's the Hebrew word na. Na means please. It's not the please and thank you, please. It's, it, it's this passionate, please. Abraham, please, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. And uh, I like that. Because in that please, I think we get into the pounding heart of God. He knows what he's asking with this request. And it's this passionate, Abraham, please. I know this makes absolutely no sense, I, 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 but please, could you take your son? And the story says, early the next morning, Abraham sets out with his son Isaac. And now this is where every honest person asks this question. Is Abraham a monster for even considering this? And is God a monster for requesting this? Well, if you know the story, the story is kind of moving along fast, and then all of a sudden, uh, you get to the verse where it says, and so the two of them walked on together, and all of a sudden, the story just kind of slows down, and and, and it just wants you to to, to dial in on the fact that here's a father, and here's a son, and they're both walking side by side together. The son has the wood on his back, and the father has the instrument of death in, in his hands, and And there they go. And did they talk? Was there silence? And what about Abraham? What what, what's going on in his mind? And then all of a sudden Isaac asks the dreaded question. He says, Dad, we have the fire and we have the wood. Where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And in that moment we're in the heart of the story in fact not just the heart of Genesis 22 but we're in the heart of the whole biblical story. Where's the lamb? And I love Abraham's response. He simply says, "Son, the Lord will provide." In fact, most literally, he says, "Son, The Lord will see. In other words, (laughs) I don't know. I I can't see how God's going to provide. I I don't see the lamb. I know you don't see the lamb right now. Everything feels really dark. and, And yet, I know, I know God will provide. God will see to it. And some of you are here today in that spot. You're looking at your situation or life circumstance or family relationship or a deep loss in your family or um, a big rift or uh, something going on at work or something going on with one of your kids. And you're looking at it and some of you are even like, I can't see right now how this is going to work out. Abraham should inspire us, but God will provide. God will work this out. God has it. And this is what got Abraham up the mountain that day. Abraham was probably wrestling the way the psalmist wrestled in Psalm 13 when he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? Forever? Forever? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts? Day after day have sorrow in my heart. How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me, God, and answer me. For I am poor. I am needy. And my enemy is triumphing over me. But I will trust In your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I sing the Lord's praise because, God, you've been good to me. You've been good to me. And I hear Abraham praying that. You've been good to me. You've been good to me. You will provide. In fact, uh, this is the first time where love is used in the Bible. And love is connected to exactly what God did provide. Because the first time love is used, it's referred to Abraham, the son who you love. I want you to offer him as a sacrifice. And the rabbis say, if you want to know the true definition of a word, just look where that word was first used in scripture and you'll get the purest definition of that word. And so if that's true, the the, the most purest definition of the word love is a father who's willing to give up his son. And see, that's what God did provide. On this day, he provided a lamb, but this lamb that he provided only pointed to 2,000 years later, 2,000 years ago. When when God provided the lamb to end all lamps, his son, who came to the world, was born, who grew up. And one day God said to him, Son, are you ready? And the son said, Not my will, but your will be done. And that day God took him to this exact hill. This hill that had become special to the story, where God had at one time built his house, where God's people, day after day, year after year, generation after generation, came to draw near to God, but they came there with their lamb. And now God took his lamb, put the wood on his back, and laid him on the altar. And that's the meaning of Christmas. For God so loved the world so much that he gave us his only begotten son that whoever would trust him, trust him, will have everlasting life. He loves us that much. Sometimes it feels like he's hurting us. I'm sure to Abraham it felt, God, why are you hurting me? But God wasn't hurting him. God was helping him and he's helping us and he's helping the whole human race. Christmas is a story of a father and a son and a sacrifice. And do you love him? And what's love? Love? Love is when someone's willing to give up something so precious. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. What have you given up? I'm a father. I've had two sons. And I'm a pastor who have, I've preached this story countless times. But it wasn't until the last two years where God kind of said to me, hey, Rod, as a parent, it's time for you to let go. It's time for you to quit stressing out. It's time for you to quit trying to control the outcome of your kids. (laughs) Give them up. Give them up to me. And that's how Christmas is expressed. When we look at God who gave up so much for us, Christmas is expressed when we take that gift and then give up our lives for other people. Merry Christmas, Crossroads.
0: When uh, we were praying into this gathering and uh, singing some of these songs, they came so familiar for me. I, many of you maybe have sung these before, uh, but it was amazing to me as we as we read over them again and again, how pieces of these truths, all these things that point to Jesus, that um, as... A covering as God providing through him are just kind of, they're all woven in and out of these songs. So I just want to encourage you that as we sing them, as they're familiar, that you just really uh, key in on the words. This next one is a great example. The last verse says this. It says, be near me, Lord Jesus. I ask thee to stay close by me forever and love me, I pray. Let's sing away in a major.
3: years as an estate planning attorney, I've learned that there are two things that beneficiaries hate. They hate having to wait to get their money, and the second is like unto it, they hate having to pay lawyers to help them get it. Now, that's just human nature. The Israelites were really not much different. See, they've been promised an inheritance. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. But it's been a year, and they find themselves wandering in circles in the wilderness, and they're getting frustrated. They want what they've been promised, understandably so. So they're angry, frustrated, and in Numbers chapter 21, we read their complaint. This is what they're grumbling about. They say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? They're grumbling to, to, um, to Moses. Why have you brought us up to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water. And we loathe the worthless food. Okay, notice the contradiction there. What they're upset about. No food. And we hate the loathsome food. See, they've been getting food every day. God graciously has been pro- providing them sweet bread that lands at their doorstep every morning. And they're just sick of it. It's not that they don't have food. They don't like the food they got. What they have their hearts set on is milk and honey. And they're not getting it. So they're mad. Now, God's response is, frankly, shocking. See, because God doesn't comfort them, he doesn't pat them on the head, reassure them, or commiserate with them. Instead, he sends poisonous snakes to bite them. Now, that's offensive. All right, Just admitting that is an offensive story. Now, it's offensive for us, because we've grown up, having been taught that God is a gracious, kind, safe deity, who kind of plays by our rules, whose main desire at the end of each day is to be able to write in his journal, a good time was had by one and all. See, the God that we're comfortable with acts a lot like us in our best moments. Except the problem is that God doesn't really exist. The God of the Bible, the the true and the living God, is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he establishes the rules. See, the true God is the writer, director, producer, of the grand epic, which means history is his story, not ours. Which means that we exist not to tell our own creative stories, but for God to tell his story through us. Now, all good writers like to throw A twist into the narrative. And God, the great author, is no exception. So what's happening now, the Israelites are getting bitten. Many die. Those who survive rush to Moses and they say, Moses, do something. So Moses intervenes, he prays. And God tells them to do something utterly unexpected. This is what God says. Make a fiery serpent set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, will live. Moses does. He makes a bronze replica, puts it on a pole, and every Israelite who looks up at it is healed and lives. So, what is so startling about this story is that the very God who renders the judgment... And creates the instruments of judgment, trans- transforms the instrument of judgment into an instrument of life. It's kind of like training ISIS warriors to defeat America and then turning them into those that protect and defend her. It's very, very strange indeed. Thousands of years later, Jesus will refer to this incident in a conversation with a Jewish scholar named Nicodemus. Now, this scholar just cannot bring himself to believe Jesus' claims to be the Messiah, much less God. So, in the face of this man's incredulity, Jesus says... As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now that statement is as offensive to this paragon of Jewish morality as that Old Testament story is to us. See, we like Nicodemus Have been taught, or at least many of us have been taught, that being righteous has to do with avoiding certain bad activities. When I grew up, there were five don't drink, don't smoke, don't gamble, don't go to movies, and God forbid, don't dance. So I thought that's what it meant to be righteous. Now the Jews, they had the Big Ten. And a thousand other lesser ones to keep them from even getting close to breaking the Big Ten. Now unlike me, Nicodemus could actually claim that he had kept the rules. He was righteous. He was safe. He could skate. By referring to this historical incident, Jesus intends to shock this man and shock us. For what he is saying is something like this. You are not safe, nor are you spiritually healthy. You're in the same boat as those Israelites were who were fatally bitten. The only difference is that Unlike them, you don't know it. See, Jesus wants Nicodemus and us to realize that from the moment we were born, we were afflicted with a fatal illness. But again, contrary to what we've been taught, the illness isn't committing individual acts of lust or greed or cruelty. But it's the motive behind those acts. Now, the illness can be heard in the lyrics of, let's say, Frank Sinatra's beautiful hymn of self worship I did it my way, or in such statements as This is my body. I have the right to my own body. Or, I have the right to my own time, my own money. I decide how I create my own happiness. No one has the right to demand, limit, overrule, dictate, correct, judge, or punish me for any of my choices. For I am the master of my own fate. I am the writer, director, producer of my own story. So by referring to this unusual Old Testament incident, Jesus is issuing a warning. This is the warning. He is saying, you're in grave, grave danger. You're actually under a death sentence that my Father, my righteous Father, the righteous judge has imposed on everyone and it's a a judgment that everyone deserves regardless of which big sins you've committed or managed to avoid committing. It's a righteous judgment on every human being regardless of race, religion, or orientation. Because all of us have the same orientation. To wanting to live our life our own way. To wanting to be left alone. To do our own thing. To live life as we want it. To be God. Now Patty and I have some good friends who have five children. The youngest, the only boy, two years old, And he has been encouraged to believe that he is the center of the known universe. (laughs) So, when he doesn't get to watch what he wants on television, he will throw hard objects bellowing all the while at the television screen. Or if he doesn't get the food he wants, he will grab fistfuls of hair and bite the arm of mother or sibling next to him. And also, if he is otherwise displeased, he will throw himself on the ground, writhe and thrash about, hitting his forehead or head on the floor or the wall until he has bent others to his will. Now, I have to admit, I have sympathy for that young chap. See, my parents tell me that at the similar age... I would sit on the floor, spread my legs, and beat my forehead on the ground until my forehead was black and blue, or I'd gotten my way. Now, I no longer beat my head against hard objects. I'm more sophisticated. Plus, I have a much lower pain threshold. But honestly... Though you and I may no longer throw temper tantrums when we don't get our way, all of us in a thousand clever, sophisticated, passive-aggressive ways demand to have our way. If we don't, if we don't get what we deserve, or we don't get what we think we deserve, or what we want... We become angry or frustrated, resentful, cold, withdrawn, or worse, cruel. See, we're insistent on structuring our own lives to maximize our own pleasure and our own comfort. Now, the Bible warns us that the wages of such self-centeredness, the Bible calls it sin, is death. Which means being condemned to actually being the center of your own universe to, as it were, pound your forehead on the floor forever. You see, what God knows, and we don't, is that our insistence on being God is a death wish as well as a death sentence. For if we do get our way, if everything revolves around us, our lives will be emptied out, hollowed. We will be left empty. We will chase after pleasure, pursuing pleasure, with less and less satisfaction, ultimately will be alienated from others and from God forever. And that's hell. But the great good news is that the God who sends the poisonous snakes to impose the death sentence is the God who offers his own son to bear the sentence for us. He is the God who transforms the instrument of judgment into an instrument of healing and life. God's son dies in order that we might live. Now there are teachers today, popular, influential, who proclaim that what I have just said is a scandalous slander against the character of God. That a God who would vent his anger and punish an innocent child, his own innocent child, is guilty of child abuse. In the words of St. Paul to Timothy, such men who say such things, wanting to be teachers, fail to understand what they say and what they so confidently affirm. What is more, they are fatally, scandalously wrong for they have utterly misread the gospel they have misinterpreted the symbols and have misunderstood the astonishing plot twist at the end of the narrative for the plot twist that none of us could have imagined is that the god who judges sin and who imposes the sentence out of the depths of a father's loving heart says, I, in my Son, will receive the judgment for you. You see, the good news is that the Holy God who judges the world is also the Holy Father who loves the world so much so that he sacrifices himself in his son. That all who acknowledge their disease and put their confidence in him can have the illness, the disease, at the core of their being healed. So as we think this morning of that serpent lifted up on a pole for every fatally injured Jew to look upon, this Christmas let us commemorate the birth of God's Son who likewise was lifted up on a pole. This Christmas, with Isaiah, let us say, we have lifted up our eyes. We have beheld the King in his beauty. And we are no longer fatally sick for our iniquities, all of them. All of our sin has been forgiven. Behold, the Father's love for you. Behold, the Father's love for you. Behold, the Father's love for you. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who heals all our diseases.
4: Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Melissa and Rod, for sharing this morning. Very challenging thoughts. You know, it's a lot of pressure to share and, and, and do topical things. It's kind of confusing. If everybody's heard enough, just let, it, just let it brew a little bit. I was asked to share a few thoughts, if it's not too much. Um, I'll, time, I'll make sure it's not very long. Um, you know, I, I was asked to share, and an a, really a, a topic, Emmanuel, Emmanuel. It comes up in uh, Isaiah chapter 7. It's like a prophecy about a young woman or a virgin conceiving and bearing a child. And then he says, his name shall be called Emmanuel. Yeah. And so I was looking in Matthew chapter 1, where Matthew uh, writes this into the story of Jesus' birth. It's kind of interesting. An a angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, you shall name him Jesus. Uh, You know, don't worry about taking Mary to be your wife and all that. And then, you know, there's a pause, and if you're paying attention, Matthew just sort of interjects uh, some thoughts here, and he says, this is uh, to fulfill the words of the prophet Isaiah, for a young woman, a virgin, shall conceive and bear a child, and his name shall be Emmanuel. And I think that maybe I'm the only one who's asking the question, why didn't they name him Emmanuel? Emmanuel. Isaiah might have just risked, I don't know, some like contradiction, criticism or whatever uh, to bring in this uh, other part of this story. But did they misname him? Uh, what name is right for Jesus? I don't know. I mean, the other angel, that story with Mary, this is the same thing. You will name him Jesus. He shall be called son of the most high God. Which is it? Should I call him what he shall be called, or should I name him what you're telling me to name him? I mean, not only is she just now figuring out that she doesn't get to go through the beautiful process of naming a child, but he's also going to have several different names he's called. Maybe it's just uh, my nickname being so controversial that I just like stories in the Bible where the names things gets confusing. Uh, Or maybe it's just because I kind of want uh, this Emmanuel name to just not be a part of the Christmas story subconsciously. It pesters me. It's the only name, title of Jesus that I look at and I just think, I don't know. I mean, he's not here. He's not. It means God with us. Why didn't they name him God who would be with us for just a little while? I've grown up my entire life, Christmas, every year, I'm a pastor's son, I'm in the church, we're doing Christmas stuff, and there are so many people that come for Christmas services, or there's so many family members that come to town for Christmas, everybody's there. Uh, People you would never see throughout the year show up for Christmas, and it's kind of weird because the only person that doesn't show up is Jesus. He's so powerful, you'd think that there would be just one or two times where he would show up for Christmas, you know, and actually celebrate, uh, but it never happens. It's kind of menacing to me, Emmanuel. Uh, lots at stake, you know, if we just start to erase this, I mean, even in our faith. If you start to say uh god you know isn't really with us then what do you have? I mean a, a religion that's just morals or or good ideas or things that we ought to that we think we ought to do to help humanity or something. In other words uh if, if you have a, a, a no Jesus Christmas, I mean you're you're not just risking uh missing the meaning of Christmas or or whatever, you're risking a life that's just uh left with just your own strength and your own uh, ability to to navigate through uh, life as to what we're supposed to do. And really, we all know that's kind of just the luck of the draw. I mean, if we start having philosophical debates about who should do what, it really breaks down quickly. God with us is a central theme to our faith. Even if you're not a Christian, God with us still I think is a very important thing for us to uh figure out and for us to uh come to grips with. How many people have heard someone in the world who I don't care if they're Christian just say no no God in this situation. I, I where is he? I, I have I've experienced pain. No, nope. There there could be no God. I can how could a God be around and me experience this pain? I have no God with me. I have an argument also that I think even in the nature of all humans is a desire to be with God. It goes as follows. At the beginning of the Bible is a uh, rendition of, of, of the creation of everything. Uh, Melissa shared uh, and Rod from Genesis, the Genesis. The first chapter of Genesis, is it, in the first verse, is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the 26th verse it says, and then God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. I get the image part. We all pretty much look alike. Uh, hands and faces and arms and whatnot. But what's the likeness? You've got to ask that question. It's not all of the likeness of God. I, I don't have all of the likeness. I mean, even Adam and Eve didn't have the knowledge of good and evil. What, but what likeness did he make in them? I find a clue in a very famous verse in John chapter 1 and verse 1. You guys probably know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that's a fancy word for Jesus, and in the beginning was Jesus, back when God was saying let's make man in our image, in our light, and in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and God said let us make man in our likeness. There's a with God likeness that I think is put on the, the, huma- the nature of humanity, It's no surprise that if you if you get if you buy that okay that's my I'm selling that if you buy that there's no surprise that in chapter two verse eighteen God says it's not good for man to be alone not because he needs a wife because he was made to be with God and he's not with God he's alone he illustrates this by bringing companion he brings the animals the animals it doesn't fix it he fashions the woman from the man she doesn't fix it. She makes his life worse. (laughs) If being near God, with God is the key, after she comes in, they're farther away from God than they were. What an incompetent solution that would be from God. She even has a likeness problem too. Remember what the snake said to her. If you eat this fruit, you will be like God. There's a frustrated likeness that isn't being fulfilled that she was willing to buy. Chapter 5 picks up and says, uh, God made man in his likeness, and then man knew his wife and conceived and bore a son in their likeness. And then through them becomes a new likeness that's uh, imparted to anybody that was born by a man and a woman. So, if you like me and you like symmetry, this uh, seems a little bit of a lopsided paradigm. You have um, God and a man making a woman, okay? And then you have a man and a woman making everybody else. And then you've got woman until Christmas. You have the final piece of this um, pattern. You've got God and a woman making man. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 46 says that Jesus is the last Adam and the second man, Emmanuel. Jesus, John 1 says, the word became flesh and was with us. Jesus put on a campaign to preach to all of us with his life and with his words that he knows that there's a gap between all of us and God. He knows that that's something that we all desire. But he wants to tell us not only is that something that we desire, but that's something that God desires. He's willing to leave where he was with God and come be with us. And then say, with everything he does, I want to remove everything that's in between you and God. I want to remove all the obstacles in between you having what you were created to have. This is a beautiful uh, part of Jesus' life. I mean, isn't the last thing that he said to us was, uh, I will be with you. Even to the end of the age. And the genius of the ascension to me is, is that he ascends with scars in his hands. And his feet. He ascends with the marks of being a man and actually uh, goes into the presence of God and finally having a man where we want to be (laughs) with God. And in him, we too can have that by the means of his spirit that he sent us. So, Emmanuel is a spiritual thing. You have to believe that he has sent his spirit uh, to dwell inside of us so that we can participate in that like. That with God, uh, reality. And what does the Holy Spirit do? He tells us of all the things in our life that we thought we were abandoned and forsaken and alone, in, and how Jesus wants to, us to know he 's been with us. It happened in my own life. I, I have a lot of stories in my childhood and growing up where I, because of my personality or situations that I 'm in, felt that I was forsaken. It had a lot to do with, you know, just friends and stuff. I just felt alone a lot. And I was with Greg Dempster once. It was probably almost 10 years ago. Praying just about woundedness. And uh, I felt in my heart just all of a sudden a... I felt like Jesus just, I don't know how to describe told me. or Told me I w- was with you. That wasn't lost on me. I was there. I want you to know you're not alone. You've never been alone. Holy Spirit tells us that, and he shows us in all these stories, like we've seen even the, the traumatic drama of these Old Testament stories of how uh, Adam and Eve, in their most shameful moment, where they were exposed and naked, and God made a covering. Holy Spirit tells us uh, God's making a covering for all of us. You're not alone in this. They're not alone in this. We're in this together. And Jesus is our covering. If you accept him as that. Genesis 22. That Rod said. This, this sacrifice. The weight of the giving of the father. Uh, paying for uh, sin with the son. And the sacrifice. This uh, is a picture of who Jesus is for all of us. If you would have him as that. As Tim said. The serpent lifted up. Providing healing from everyone who has venom in their blood, if you would look to Jesus, so you can have that. And I pray that we all receive him as that. But that's still just the spiritual side of things. Jesus is not with us. And I do believe that Jesus is coming again. And he will be here, and it will be better if he was here. It's taken a lot of deconstruction a lot of things uh, that I had to unlearn to believe that that would be a good thing because I've been so frightened of uh, the return of the Lord my entire life. But I now do believe, from what I know about Jesus, from what I've read in the Bible, I want this guy to come to this world and be here and rule and reign and uh, he would be the greatest leader uh, we've ever seen. And I can't wait for that to happen. And what that does is it moves me to live a life Uh, That believes that that's going to happen again. It starts to remove some of that jaded, uh, Jesus is never coming to Christmas uh, feelings out of my heart. And say, no, it would be much better for you to come. And I can't wait for it to happen. That's worth celebrating. That's worth gathering around. That's worth looking forward to. And saying, please, come. This is what the last two chapters of the Bible are about. John, when he writes Revelations, he says in Revelation 21, Then I looked and beheld a new heaven and a new earth for the former things had passed away and there was no more any sea. And then I saw coming from God out of heaven a new city, a holy city, a new Jerusalem. It looked like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, Emmanuel, the dwelling place of God will now be with man, finally, with man, which you've always longed for, what you were created to be, it's gonna happen. There will be no more crying. There will be no more pain, for he'll wipe away all the tears from their eyes. And I heard a voice from the throne saying, look, God, I'm making everything new. May we be a people this year that carry with us the weight of the life and the death of Jesus. May we be a people that receive uh the connection that Jesus has made to us uh, through the Holy Spirit to finally get that, but also people whose eyes are on the horizon, waiting, who are characterized by those verses in Revelation 22. The Spirit and the Bride say, "Come." He who testifies to these things says, "Behold, I'm coming quickly." Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.
0: you on high we lift our eyes to behold you today we recognize you as as covering as one who washes away uh, all of the sin and the things that entangles us it sets us free thank you that you are with us Uh, And we can leave this place and every step you are with us, every moment you are with us, every moment you draw near to us. Uh, Help us, God, as we seek to live our lives with our eyes fixed on you, firmly fixed on you in every moment. And uh, we long, Jesus, just to give you the honor and praise that you are due. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas everyone. Great worshiping with you today. I love the round. Hey, uh, next week, Sunday, uh, we will be in our new year, 2016, crazy. And we're going to have baptisms next Sunday. So if that's been something that's been on your heart or something that just this morning, um, the reality of who Jesus is hit you, come talk to one of us. We'd love to Talk to you about baptism next week. Thanks. Have a great week.